To Matthew 28, we return this morning. We'll pick up at verse 16 where we left off last time. This is at page 835 in the um, Bible provided in the pew for you, if that's helpful. Remember that uh, last time we were here, news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead was still en route to the brothers, to the disciples on the swift and beautiful feet of those faithful women who were commissioned by Jesus to carry the good news. They had heard his voice, they had worshipped the risen king, you remember them clinging to his feet, and soon the brothers also would join them by participating in those same great privileges. We know that uh, they did even uh, later that same day. Now the men have obeyed the orders they have received to head for Galilee for their appointment to appear before the risen king of kings. They've come to the mountain, whichever one that was, we don't know. Back up north in their home region now of Galilee, the familiar ground on which they had followed their master for most of the days of his ministry up north in Galilee. For their efforts at obedience, they would not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for preserving these historic, uh, the record of these historic events to this very day for the purpose that they should serve as so much more than mere records, that they should be the living and active word of God. And we pray that that's exactly what they will be to us here this morning, that we will hear the voice of God, that we will be cut and molded and shaped and built up uh, by your word, that we may be more and more obedient to him who followed the path of ultimate obedience to make us his own. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now the masterful nature of Matthew's composition of the gospel here is never more clear in any of its passages or pages than it is right here at the end. I know that it has been a few years since we started this series together, but if you will think back to the beginning, how Matthew began, you'll remember that it started with a genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. King. Matthew's gospel, as we've seen time and time and time again over these many months together, is all about the kingship of Jesus, about Jesus the king. 
It's all culminated here, hasn't it? From the Davidic royal genealogy in chapter 1 to the Magi's search for the king to the threat of Herod couched in language of messiahship to Jesus' royal entrance into the city of Jerusalem astride a donkey, even through the mockery of his kingship with a crown of thorns and a scepter of reed, now is seen for its true nature. He is king. He is king of kings. His kingship, the nature of his kingship, it, it, it transcends politics, we learn here. It extends beyond, far, far beyond the Jews, beyond Palestine. It is universal. It's the universal kingship of the Son of Man, which has been bursting through the seams, as we've noticed over these past few years, few years bursting through the seams of Matthew here and, and there and over here again. He is the king of the parables, the son of man who will send out his angels to gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers to throw them into the fiery furnace while he causes the righteous to shine like the sun. He is the king who would be seen by some of these who would not taste death until they saw the son of man. He is the king who promised that when he sits on his throne, those who followed him would also sit on thrones to judge. He is the king who will come in his glory, all of his angels with him, who will sit on his glorious throne, gather the nations to himself, and separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats forever, saying to them, to the sheep, come Inherit the kingdom prepared from you from the found, for you from the foundation of the world. He is king. And all of Matthew's gospel has been driving us and driving us inexorably to this conclusion, to this very Galilean mountain. I can't help but wonder... Don't you? This is the same mountain, maybe the same unidentified mountain in Galilee from which Jesus had delivered his first royal, his first kingly manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, way back in the beginning in the opening chapters of Matthew. The whole movement of Matthew is now reversed, isn't it? Matthew had been moving from north to south, and, and that movement has underlaid all of Matthew that now is reversed and the story ends where it began, back in the hills of Galilee, back up north. The conflict in Jerusalem that we've been reading and studying these past many weeks has ended in triumph for Jesus and now is all relegated to the past against all odds from a human point of view. Jesus the Galilean has won and is right back where he started this mission of his. And so it's fitting that the good news of the kingdom should be sent from here, from Galilee, from a Galilean mountain in triumphant proclamation to all the world, even to the end of the age. So many different strands of Matthew 
of his gospel come together here in these closing verses to their, to their culmination. Here the twelve, or well, rather the, the eleven, but to, though disastrously dispersed during Jesus' cross work, are now restored to their position and more. They're given instructions for the mission to which Jesus had called them in the first place. Only the mission now is clearly expanded, isn't it? Though he had sent them, we remember back in chapter 10, only to the lost. Jesus said, go nowhere. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, they're newly restored to their posts, and they're sent to all the nations. Go, go to the Gentiles too. The imperceptible mustard seed about which Jesus taught us back in chapter 13 is now to grow into that mighty tree that he talked about. The kingdom is to spread and to grow and to fill the earth. The prayer about the kingdom that he taught his disciples to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Thy kingdom come. It's now being answered. And right at the center of it all is the risen Jesus Christ, just as he said he would be. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. The church, he told Peter at Caesarea Philippi back in chapter 16, he would build, he we now understand is an international one because as Jesus tells them here, it is he who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. He into whose name with the Father and the Spirit they would baptize his new disciples. All his commandments that they would teach the disciples of all the nations to obey, and His presence that would sustain them and carry them always, even to the end of the age. Don't you hear in all of that three distinct royal resolutions, we might call them. There's first the royal claim. Second, the royal commission. And third, the royal comfort. Jesus, the King of kings, has made a royal claim. He has delivered to us a royal commission, and he has added his royal comfort. It's the first of those two, the three, that I want to consider with you this morning, the claim and the commission. I hope the Lord willing to return next week to the third, the comfort. First, consider with me the royal claim that Jesus makes here. He says in regal, kingly fashion, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, by the way, just as And aside, as long as we've been noticing these strands of Matthew that get tied up here, that that find their culmination here, that are resolved here in the last four verses of the book, notice how this universal authority is so much greater than that which had been offered him right after his baptism in the wilderness by the devil in the desert. 
Anyway, Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, isn't it interesting that Matthew carefully points this out? Jesus came to them. No small details. Why is that important? Jesus came to them. Well, it could certainly be that it is because it goes a long way toward answering a concern that is still niggling at your mind right now. That little detail we read in verse 16, that when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted? If the fact, if that fact bothers you and I reckon it should, while you're not alone. You can imagine how much ink has been spilled over the centuries to answer this question. How could any of the disciples at this point have doubted him? Well, for one thing, it certainly could be the case that Matthew's not describing the response of any of the eleven. They, after all, we know from other Gospels, have already seen Jesus and spoken with him before Now, but Matthew may be describing the reactions of others of the Lord's disciples. It may may well be. In fact, it, it seems quite likely that it is the case that there were more than just the 11 here. There would be no contradiction in that case on this present occasion. Remember that Paul tells us that the Lord appeared to more than 500 of the disciples at one time. This may well be that occasion. May have been. We can't say for sure, but it would be utterly unsurprising for us to find among a group that size, many, many people, some, maybe several, who like Thomas just found it harder (laughs) to accept the reality of Jesus' resurrection, you know? Especially at this time, at least at first. And we also remember how overwhelming and how confusing and how unsettling all of this was to the Lord's disciples. How on the first morning, some of them didn't even recognize Jesus. And how on that first evening, some of them thought they were seeing a ghost. Now, we, we don't blame anybody for doubting, do we? Or for hesitating. That, by the way, is another way that the word here can be translated. Hesitating at first. Or remember how even from the very first, uh, as we read last time, the women found themselves in a mixture of joy and also of fear when they first received the news. The point I believe Matthew is making here is that Jesus, so gracious, so kind, so loving, so considerate of his disciples, he comes to them. He comes to them, just as he continues to come to those whom he is making his disciples today, revealing himself to doubters. Approaching them close, coming, drawing near to the hesitant, bringing 
them to himself by bringing himself to them. He comes to them. He comes to the group. He walks over to the group, as it were, and he puts their hesitancy to rest. The king speaks, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. It's an echo, by the way, of Daniel chapter 7, isn't it? The king uh, there, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Remember Jesus identifying himself this way from the very same passage, that passage I just read from Daniel 7 before the Sanhedrin. And we also remember many instances in the Gospels and in Matthew in which Jesus had predicted the securement of that sovereignty to himself in the near future. And now that vision, that prophecy, that prediction has become reality. So Satan had offered him sovereignty, remember, sovereignty over the whole earth, an offer that Jesus refused in that desert battle. Now Jesus, having gone all the way of obedience to the Father, had received so much more than Satan could ever offer or pretend to offer. Now he is king over all earth and of all heaven. The way he had described, this is striking because this is the way he had described his father, wasn't it? Back in chapter 11 as the Lord of heaven and earth. That is his royal claim and it's precisely this universal sovereignty, this reign over heaven and earth that serves now as the foundation on which Jesus issues second, his royal commission. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now we get into the nitty-gritty of the uh, commission, but just before we do that, I wanted to make this observation. It is actually quite surprising, isn't it, really ought to almost throw us out of our chairs, that Jesus goes from his royal proclamation of sovereignty to this commission for you, for me, for us. After all, I mean, <clears throat> logically, wouldn't you expect rather to hear Jesus say at this point, therefore I am going to make disciples of all the nations, right? Right? I have all authority of heaven and earth. Now get out of my way while I do the work. But that's not what he says. Instead, he issues a command, this commission to you and to me, to people, to his disciples. He says, You, 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 you go, you go make disciples. Of the nations. 
Now, clearly enough, and we'll get to this next time, as I say, Lord willing, it is by His power at work in us that we do this. His presence with us that is our help and is our source and by which this will be accomplished. But that in no way changes this simple fact. And fact it is that it is we who are given the responsibility by Jesus to go make disciples. Tempting as it would be for any of us, were we in Jesus' shoes with Jesus' power, simply to handle it ourselves. You all know about that, don't you? I sure do. If you want something done right, what? (laughs) Do it yourself. Jesus chooses instead to establish his kingdom not by his own immediate physical presence or even by his own direct agency. Rather, he makes you his agents. He sends you to make disciples. He uses his disciples to make disciples. Amazing. That's high privilege. Don't miss this. What a high and honorable privilege we've been given for a short time, my brothers and sisters, to go and make disciples. You and I and all other Christians are his instruments, the willing instruments that he uses to bring his kingdom to bear in the nations. Now, interestingly, he's already done this, hasn't he? To a remarkable degree. I mean, think about this. To begin with, this has been God's vision, his, his plan, all along. We can go all the way back to Abraham. Go all the way back to Genesis, to Father Abraham. And what do you hear him promising the patriarch? That he will be a blessing to what? To the nations. To the na- That through Abraham, God says, all the nations shall be blessed. And then that continues in Scripture through the prophets. One after another after another and almost countless number of predictions speak of the eventual reign of the Messiah that would come when the knowledge of God covered the earth as the waters covered the sea. In a few moments we'll sing another of those beautiful... Well, a few minutes ago we did, right? From Psalm 72 we sang that unto earth's remotest bounds is peaceful rule shall be as wide dominion shall extend from sea to utmost sea that to the nations would come the sovereign reign of God we just sang it together from Psalm 72 in a few minutes we're going to go to another psalm Psalm 22 that the ends of the earth will hear and turn to the Lord that all the families of the earth will worship him Why? Because kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Looking ahead from there, the great royal commission here at the end of Matthew became the springboard, didn't it, for launching that that vision into reality from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria To the utmost ends of the earth, his rule has been received, hasn't it? And not reluctantly. You know, before the end of the Bible's record, it will extend to Ephesus and to Corinth and to Rome. 
And from there, through the work of missionaries, the rule of Christ will expand into Spain, into Gaul, over the centuries, into Ireland, and into Africa, into Ukraine, to India, to China by the 8th century. Christ's flag has been planted on every continent of this globe over these past 20 centuries. And disciples have been made all around the world. The late Queen Elizabeth II at the age of 16 may well have heard William Temple upon his installation as the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1942 describe Christianity's worldwide influence as the great fact of our time. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, says the psalmist. Rightly did the Samaritans call Jesus the Savior of the world. He, after all, lays claim to all of its people and draws from every nation of the earth people to himself. And toward that end, I say it again, may it never grow old to us, he has chosen you. You. To carry it out. Make disciples. Remember D. James Kennedy used to say, let's make Jesus' last command our first priority. Well, how shall we do this? How shall we carry out his great, his royal commission? Well, happily, we don't have to guess. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't even have to invent it to begin with. He tells us plainly two things. Baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. First, baptizing, verse 19, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, admittedly, we may be disinclined as Christians in the Reformed tradition, particularly to lay such an emphasis on baptism as Jesus does. After all, we've seen how terribly the church can err and has erred in making baptism into more than Scripture itself makes it out to be. We've seen how baptism has been abused as almost a talisman, an act by which people who otherwise have no real interest in the Savior convince themselves that they are saved and inheritors of eternal life. We know the tendency of our own hearts, don't we, to trust in the outward rights our I-T-E itself, without true hearts within. But we cannot change the facts that the apostles were told to make disciples by baptizing them, and that that's exactly what they did. How many times have we not read in this house that on the day of Pentecost, when the crowd who heard Peter's sermon were cut to the heart, cried out, what shall we do? Peter says what? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. 
It was the consistent pattern of the apostles, wasn't it? To go to preach the good news and baptize those who believed with their households, with their whole households. And usually, immediately, without delay. Remember Lydia and her family baptized the very day she trusted in Christ. And the jailer and his family also baptized the very night of his profession. Baptism is the sign and the seal of God's covenant, the demonstration of the vital union God establishes between himself and his disciples. And by being baptized in the Trinitarian name of God, notice Jesus does not give us three names, but one name consisting of three Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've been working that over with Luke in the, in the morning study uh, before worship. I say in baptism, we, his disciples, are bound up, not just identified with, but publicly, formally joined with God. That is, after all, what a disciple is. He is, she is a person whose life is bound up with God, belonging to God, beholden in every way to God. Baptism shows that we belong to Christ, that we are subject to the Father, that we are dependent on the Holy Spirit. Baptism means that our lives, our lives are entirely God's. Our purpose our aim, our ends, our interests, they're all now defined by our living relationship to the triune God. All day, every day, everywhere, at all time. Baptize. Second, we make disciples of Christ by teaching them. Teaching what? By teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's been said that a true Christian disciple is someone who acts in the knowledge of and in obedience to the truth as it has been revealed in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. A person who has been baptized has been pledged to obedience. And obedience implies a standard, a rule to be obeyed, right? How do we know what that standard is? Where do we find that rule? Well, in the commandments. It's in observing all that Christ has commanded that we obey. Those who love Jesus, Jesus says, will keep his commandments. Remember he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I refrain from details, but I have a, a pastor friend who's dealing this, with this right now. With a person in his church who should know better, but has decided to live in a lifestyle of sin, who has looked him in the face just in the last week and said to him, oh, pastor, Christianity's not a bunch of rules. It's about a relationship. My, my. What does Jesus have to say about that relationship? 
if you love me, you will obey me. If we're in a relationship, then you will keep my commandments. It's a relationship that comes with rules. And rules for which we are glad that we love, like the psalmist. Oh, how I love thy law. These disciples, true disciples, operate by a spirit of submission to God. They truly submit their minds and their hearts and their actions to the commandments of Christ, to God's law. They listen to the word and then they run to obey. Or as James has been at pains to remind us recently in our evening studies in worship, they are not only hearers, but they are doers of the word, of the royal law, as James calls it, of Jesus. As Augustine put it in his, in his confessions, Lord, he is your best servant who looks not so much to hear from you what he wants as rather to want that which he hears from you. Notice that Jesus does not merely say, go and make converts here, does he? Go and make a bunch of converts. Alas, we can easily slip into that thinking, can't we? That if we can get people to make decisions for Jesus, that we can, we can somehow secure this obedience to make disciples in a single conversation, with a single sermon, with a single interaction. No, that, those conversions, of course, are just the beginning. Baptism, then discipleship, that is teaching, must follow if we're to be obedient to Christ's royal commission here. That's going to require a lot of commitment, isn't it? A lot of commitment on our part and on yours and on mine to spend the time, the energy that's going to be necessary to teach others. And by the way, to remain learners ourselves. As we're discipling others, we ourselves remain disciples, don't we? A disciple is, remember, a disciple is simply a person who has learned and is continuing to learn to order his or her life according to all the commandments of Christ. According to all that he requires us to believe and all that he requires us to do. We obey his doctrines and we obey his commandments. Wherever this has happened in the world, and it has happened all around the world, it has happened only because true disciples of Jesus love him so much and love their neighbors enough to help them also to come and follow the Lord. That's the greater work, isn't it? The ongoing work, the harder work, the long-term work of pouring your life, your time, your efforts into another. 
Now, of course, this begs the question, doesn't it? To make disciples, you must first be a disciple yourself. And so maybe that's the first question for us to ask ourselves today. Am I his disciple? Am I a disciple of his? Truly. Have I been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And do I obey his commandments? Not perfectly, of course, but earnestly, repentantly, strivingly obeying, wanting, as Augustine put it, wanting that which you have heard from him. If not, if you are not a disciple, then it is time for you to become a disciple time for you to become a disciple of Jesus today, right now, this moment. And I will tell you that anyone here in this room will be glad to talk to you about what it means to be a disciple of his, about how that can happen. If so, if you are a disciple of his, then it is time for you to go and make disciples. No more wasting time. No more waiting, putting this off. It's time for you now, as you leave this place, to look for disciples, to make a disciple out of one other person or two or three. Because Jesus has said this is the way it works. Disciples make disciples. That's his amazing plan. You get to be part of that, and so do I. In fact, that's what disciples do. That's just what they do, because disciples themselves are <laughs> observing all that Jesus commands. And among the chief of those commandments is this. Go. <laughs> Make disciples. Disciples.